Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. Hi, I'm Robert Darden, and I'm your host for Treasures of the Texas Collection. With us is Rebecca Sharpless, Associate Professor of History at Texas Christian University. And Rebecca is also the author of the recently published Cooking in Other Women's Kitchens, Domestic Workers in the South, 1865 to 1960. All right, Rebecca, tell us about the Texas Collection Cookbook Collection. What's so special about it? The Texas Collection has a growing collection of cookbooks. Right now, there are about 1,500 titles. About a third of those were published before 1980, and of course, being in the Texas Collection, they're all on Texas foods or Texas topics. Sure. But a number of them are, are quite rare, and there are a few that the Texas Collection has the only catalog copy anywhere. Yeah, that's cool. So, what is the history of cookbooks in Texas? Is this like a big deal? It is a big deal. The first cookbook in Texas was published in 1883 by the First Presbyterian Church of Houston. But the history of cookbooks, or cookery books as they used to be called, <laughs> goes back a whole lot further than that. Sure. Uh, in the American colonies, the earliest published cookbooks were from England, and they were English recipes things like that. But in 1796, a woman named Amelia Simmons, who was probably from New York, published the first American cookbook. And the first Southern cookbook was called The Virginia Housewife by a woman named Mary Randolph, and her book came out in 1824. Now, those early cookbooks were the work of what I call exemplary women, (laughs) and they were designed to teach other women how to function around the kitchen. Mary Randolph, for example, came from a wealthy Virginia family. She was related to Thomas Jefferson, but they had had a reversal of fortunes. And she opened this really, really successful boarding house in Washington, D.C. to bring in a little money. And so even though a quarter of the Southern women had slaves, only a relative few of them had those really fabulous cooks that produced the multi-course feast that the South is famous for. Most Southern women had to cook for their own families. And a cookbook was a way to share that knowledge with those that people like Mary Randolph had gained and say, this is what I did. And so the tradition of the exemplary cook follows today with people like Paula Dean and Rachel Ray. And so when people started moving to the United to Texas from the eastern United States, they could they had to bring their cookbooks with them. Okay. And it wasn't until the eighteen eighties The only cookbooks in Texas were the ones that women had brought with them when they came over. And so they might be these exemplary cookbooks, or they might be a new kind. And that was the community or a so-called compiled cookbook. Okay, wait now. Now, what's a community cookbook? Community cookbook is the kind of cookbook that got its start in the North during the Civil War, when women were sitting around going, hmm, there was this really big war going on. What can I do to help? And what they figured out that they could do was publish books of recipes to raise money for the war effort. And this idea caught on, and after the Civil War, women in both the North and the South started creating and joining volunteer associations. Um, the women of the United States were going to do everything from, in chi- from ending child labor to making alcohol illegal. And they were very earnest. <laughs> And they took very seriously their commitment to social change, but there was a little problem. They needed money to do this. And so they got to thinking, well, how can a respectable woman earn money? 
not an easy proposition. Sure. So they decided that they could get together and they could publish and sell books of recipes. And they did by the thousands. Mm. There's one scholar who estimates that there were more than 3,000 of these compiled cookbooks that appeared between 1861 and 1915. Oh, my. So somebody was buying them then. Apparently, that was <laughs> apparently they did quite well with them. Now Texas was kind of late getting into the cookbook game. Uh, the Virginia in the South, the Virginians took the lead. There were a zillion Virginia cookbooks sure. for this time period. But once Texas got started, the idea really took off, and church women in particular started bringing out cookbooks. Yeah, there's a cookbook scholar in Houston named Elizabeth White, and she compiled what librarians call a checklist of every cookbook that she could find published in Texas before 1936. And according to Elizabeth's very copious research, between 1883 and 1936, there were at least 400 cookbooks published in Texas. Just before 1900, the cookbooks came out from the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, and the Methodists. Mm -hmm. But then other Voluntary groups got into the act, too. They didn't have to be church groups. The Ladies Auxiliary of the YMCA in El Paso, for example, put out a book. And the United Daughters of the Confederacy had its own publication. And so it went, the number of cookbooks expanding every year virtually. And the Texas Collection has a significant number of those early cookbooks. Uh, It's hard to tell exactly how many the Texas Collection has, or exactly what time period, because a lot of cookbook writers were pretty good cooks, but they were amateur authors and publishers, <laughs> and they don't always put good publication information on the books. Oh, no. So if you look in Bearcat, the, the online catalog, some of the catalog entries have a lot of question marks to indicate the librarians think they have a pretty good idea of when the book was published or where or who the author was, but they're not positive. Mm, that's got to be frustrating. So... I know the Texas collection has just about everything. Why did they start emphasizing and collecting cookbooks? Now, collecting cookbooks is part of a movement that started in the 1960s called social history. During the 1960s, when there was a lot of social change going on, a number of people started looking at the typical history book, and what they saw were generals and presidents. And they look at those books and they go, wait a minute, where are the people who look like me in these books? So historians started looking at topics that didn't deal only with powerful white men. They started looking at poor white men, poor white women, African Americans, immigrants, you name it. Uh, The problem is that a lot of these folks, since they weren't wealthy and powerful, didn't keep good records on themselves. Of course, a lot of them couldn't even read or write. Sure. So people who would like to study these topics have to get really creative. And cookbooks are a wonderful source for looking at women's lives. Now, the core of the Baylor Collection came from a donation by an individual around the year 2000, and the collection has grown enormously since then. The Texas Collection staff started acquiring cookbooks, and people who heard about the book started donating theirs. And then Houston librarian Elizabeth White, who I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, has established an endowment at Baylor for the purchase and preservation of cookery books, and she gave her own personal collection of 2,000 volumes that will eventually come to Baylor. Oh, my. That's great. It's a wonderful gift. Just wonderful. When the Texas Collection got serious about collecting cookbooks, it joined the company of a lot of really fabulous libraries. They're wonderful, wonderful culinary collections that they're called at the Library of Congress. 
New York Public Library, the Schlesinger Library at Harvard. Wow. Yeah, really high company. And then there's some wonderful ex- collections in places that you might not expect, like the University of Denver, where they had a collection of 14,000 titles <laughs> literally just sort of appear on the loading dock of the library one day. Now, um, the University of Denver collection goes outside of the United States, and their earliest title is 1683. Wow. Very, very impressive. And here in Texas, Texas Women's University has a really, really nice collection of cookbooks. But as far as we know, Baylor has the largest group of cookbooks focused just in Texas. We're number one. It's okay. Now, explain this carefully for me because I'm slow. What can you learn by looking at an old cookbook besides just recipes? Well, and the recipes are a challenge, too, because they don't always explain things the way you want them explained. But you can learn a lot of things, and it just depends on what you're interested in. When I pick up an old cookbook, for example, the first thing I try to figure out is who wrote it and why. And as I just indicated, that's not always obvious. Sometimes there's a long explanation, and sometimes there is nothing. And so one thing you can pretty much count on is that the early cookbook was written by a white woman. There are a handful of cookbooks by African Americans that appeared in the early 20th century, but as far as I know, not in Texas. And we can depend that the writer of the cookbook was literate, that they they could read and write. And most Texans, both black and white, were by 1900. And they had the the means to pull their project together. They were organized enough and they had enough money to get it together and get it printed. Right. And so, as I mentioned, the club women of the United States were going to save the world, and they were going to sell cookbooks to do it. And that kind of determination can go a long way. One of my very favorite examples are the members of the Ladies' Guild of St. Paul's Episcopal Church here in Waco. In the early 1880s, they got really worried because the church just built a new building, and the women were worried about the debt. Okay. They were unhappy about the money, amount of money the church owed, and so as a group, they got together and they pledged to raise $800 to help retire the debt. Which is a lot of money back then. It was a lot of money then. And then after they made the pledge, then they had to figure out where to get the money. <laughs> the details. Details. Right. Always details. Details. So we don't know who the writer was in the cookbook because that's kind of the way things went, but she wrote... While casting about for some way in which to secure this amount, it was suggested that among the members and friends of the guild were many experienced housekeepers who could doubtless give much valuable information in the various departments of domestic economy, which information would bring a pecuniary collateral. Well said. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) And we don't know how much money the women at St. Paul's raised there in in the 1880s, but they must have done pretty well because they published a second cookbook 13 years later. Okay. In fact, the women of St. Paul's of Waco were the most prolific cookbook writers that I know of. They published cookbooks in 1888, 1901, 1949, and 1978. And all wonderful, I'm sure. Yeah, they actually are quite good. I believe it. Now, back up a little bit. Publishing a book of any kind isn't cheap. Where did these new cookbook writers get the financial backing needed to publish their books? Somebody's got to come in there in the beginning. I always find it very amusing that these proper Victorian women went out and they sold ads (laughs) to finance their books. Now, a lot of the businessmen who bought their ads 
may have been their husband's friends, sure. uh-huh. and in some cases even their husbands. But still, <laughs> the idea of a proper Victorian woman going out and shilling for money just amuses me <laughs> enormously. I have this vision of Mrs. So-and-so going out with her gloves and her big hat and sitting across the desk from a businessman and asking him for money. Love it. It's, they really, really had to believe in their cause to breach those barriers and go do things like that. Otherwise, it would have just been scandalous behavior. <laughs> but even as brave as they had to be to ask for the money, they still didn't breach all of the barriers. Okay. And very few of the books published before 1920 have any woman's name attached to them as the editor or the author. Interesting. Yeah, they weren't willing to take to claim that credit for themselves. Huh. So instead, what you have are attributions to groups of women. Okay. For example, the Ladies' Aid and Missionary Society of the Kyle Baptist Church in Kyle, Texas. Yes. Not a single woman's name, mm-hmm. but this group. And so you can imagine that for each book, there were probably one or two women out there who were working the bustles off their dresses, <laughs> getting the project together, but they don't take any credit in print. That's a shame. Now, the other thing they weren't shy about was asking their friends for contributions of recipes. In the St. Paul's first cookbook, the list of recipe contributors runs to five pages. Good heavens. Yeah, lots of them. A lot of them are from the church, but they're also from other places in Texas. They're from all across the South, especially Virginia. Of course. But they also had friends abroad in Monterey, Mexico, Boston, and New York. Wow. And so what that tells me when I look at that is that the women of St. Paul's were in touch with their friends and relatives across the country. And in those days before easy communication, it took real effort to stay connected. It would take weeks for a letter to get across the United States. And so clearly their friends and their relatives mattered enormously to these women. And also they took the time to share the recipes. So you learn a lot about the roles of elite women in Texas society. And I find it very interesting that they acted just like women everywhere else in the United States during this period. Well, what we've been talking about so far is the cookbooks themselves. Now, food's different, or at least preparations and access to food is different. What about the food? Well, there's some debate about whether cookbooks represent what people actually ate or what they wanted their neighbors to think that they ate. (laughs) Some things haven't changed. (laughs) It's absolutely true. But some of the authors will say things like, these are tried and true family favorites, which lets you know that they actually are dishes that did appear on the dining table. Uh, But you also see why a woman would want to submit only the recipes that would put her in the best light as a wife, mother, manager of a household. After all, this is likely one of the few times in her life that she's going to see her name in print, and she better make it good. Okay. But even with those warnings aside, you can learn a whole lot from about the food and the foodways. For example, in the first St. Paul's cookbook, there are 11 pages dedicated to bread. Mm. And what that tells me is that there probably weren't good commercial sources of bakery bread in Waco in 1888 that they were still having to make it at home as opposed to going to the bakeries because going to a bakery was one of the first thing, first food jobs if a family could get rid of. That was yeah. what they did. And baking yeast bread is really, really difficult. 
Yeast is a living organism, and it has to be handled delicately or it just won't work. Okay, I get that. And so the dough goes through a process of kneading and rising, and then in the 1880s, you'd have to bake it probably in a wood-fired oven. That's challenging. Yeah, it was challenging. And so it's not really any wonder that people considered what they called light bread just a huge treat. My my grandma called it sweet bread. Uh Uh-huh. And even the breads that we call quick breads, like cornbread and biscuits, could be really difficult if you didn't have good quality flour or good quality baking powder, which is a chemical compound that can get real unstable. Sure. And sometimes you have to look at the ads in combination with the recipes to get a clear picture. And so we find out that in Waco in the 1880s, you could get anything you wanted if you could afford it and if it could be shipped in here by train. There are four pages of recipes for oysters, crabs, etc. And those would almost surely have had to come in on the train from Galveston and Houston. Okay. Uh, Local grocers advertise all kinds of spices, teas, tropical fruits, wines, liquors, coffee, canned fruit, vegetables, chocolate from all over the United States. So if you could afford, as I said, if you could afford it, you could get it. Baker's chocolate, for example, came from Massachusetts. Uh, Baker's chocolate's been around a long, long Mm -hmm. time. But it's also interesting that grocers were willing to do some food preparation. One store advertised all kinds of poultry, either alive or dressed, which means that you could either buy the chicken or turkey yourself and take it home and do the deed yourself. (laughs) Or, Or the store would be willing to take this live bird and kill it for you, clean it for you, pluck the feathers out, take the guts out, Mm. and you'd go home with a nice clean chicken, usually chicken, sometimes turkey, and not have to mess with all that. Uh, They probably didn't cut it into parts like we're accustomed to now. That was still a part of the grandmother's skill set that we have lost of how to to cut a chicken into parts. Whatever it costs to get plucked and cleaned, I'm willing to pay. Now, I'm guessing here, but this being Texas, more than a few of the cookbooks have Mexican recipes, right? They do. Um, a lot of it's standard kind of southern cooking, but there is some Mexican. One of my favorite examples of that is that Gebhardt chili yep. powder was created in 1902 in San Antonio. And to me, that's real fusion cuisine. Gebhardt is a German name. Right. of a German company making chili powder, which is sort of the quintessential Mexican spice. And it's interesting because almost all of the cookbooks specify Gebhardt's when they when they call for chili powder. So there was a lot of brand loyalty. Okay. In the, in the St. Paul's early cookbook, some of the recipes came from women in San Antonio and some from the women in Monterey. Cool. And being Episcopalians, the women of St. Paul's were not prohibitionists, and recipes for homemade wine appear in the early cookbook. All right. Now, even for the well-to-do, life wasn't easy, and it certainly wasn't all sunshine with a high mortality rate, lots of sick children, and no antibiotics. Yeah. So most cookbooks had sections on cookery for the sick. And the woman who edited the St. Paul's volume talked about how hard it was if a person didn't know how to care for a sick person. Very frustrating when you have to do it and you don't know how to do it. So the ladies of St. Paul's are going to teach you how. Great. Yeah. Now, a lot of the categories of recipes are things we would recognize easily today. Most cookbooks have recipes for 
baked goods, a lot of recipes, not because we have overly large sweet tooths, but because baking takes really precise recipes to make a successful cake or bread or pie crust. It's a series of little chemical reactions, mm-hmm. which means that the in- ingredients have to be measured correctly and mixed correctly, or it's just not going to turn out. The earlier cookbooks had more recipes for this heavy fruit cake mm. and its cousin, the steamed pudding, than we're used to. They didn't have good sources of chemical leveling, and these cakes keep for years. Certainly, I've seen some fruit cakes that have been around for many decades. Yes, <laughs> they're sort of petrified by now. <laughs> but you see those in the early days, but they're not as popular as, as the light cakes that are chemically leavened. But you do see those in the early days. And, of course, there are more pickle and preserved recipes than today. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in the early cookbooks, recipes for this relish called chow chow oh, are plentiful. And it, you can make chow chow out of a lot of different things. Some people use cabbage. Some people use green tomatoes, might use pepper, might use onions, um, different variety of spices, all preserved in vinegar. It's a way to, to preserve vegetables. And today, a few people still make it, but most of us probably go to H-E-B and get it off the shelf. I love good chow chow. So... Do you think that these women really knew how to cook, or in a lot of cases their their servants or their cooks actually did it? It's really hard to tell. And, of course, I'm extremely interested in the employment of services in the household. And there aren't good records that would let us know exactly how many families had domestic workers. People have looked at the records and made educated guesses. So, for example, in big cities like Atlanta, some researchers think that maybe as many as every one out of three white families might have had a domestic worker. Uh, There was a graduate student at TCU who's now at Rice, and she estimates that here in Waco, maybe 5% of the households in Waco might have had servants in 1880. Wow, that few. That few, yeah. Again, that's that's uh, her name is Robin Sager, and again, that's just an educated guess on her part. Well-educated, but a guess. But if you look at the census returns, what's called the manuscript census, and you and you go down the list of the families, you can see that some of the wealthiest families, even here in Waco, had three or four servants in 1900. Okay. And so... I think the answer is it's all over the map. But irrespective of where it was in 1900, having domestic workers became rarer and rarer throughout the 20th century. And by 1960, only the most elite families had full-time workers. So that's a long way of saying that it's a real dilemma trying to figure out the extent to which white women did their own work and how much they just supervised their domestic workers or as... um, one woman I read about said she was a pointer. She would point, and her domestic worker would do what it was she do wanted. The actual work. Yeah. yeah. Management. Yeah. But in those early cookbooks, you don't find a lot of sentimentality about cooks or domestic workers. For the White Housewives, the, cur- the cooks were workers that had to be managed, and a lot of times they did not please their employers. Now, it's true that some families had the same cook for 30 or 40 years, and they adored her, but that was a whole lot less common than the stereotypes would have us believe. I think the movie The Help and the book The Help has opened some people's eyes to some of this. We could, we could talk about that at, at extended <laughs> another, length. Yeah. That's another movie episode. <laughs> but so, you know, one problem with cookbooks is historical sources is knowing which recipes came from the housewives and which came from their cooks who didn't get any credit. Oh, yeah. And so some people have even talked about this kind of recipe publication as a form of theft, where, hmm. you're ta- where they're taking the cook's intellectual property. Yeah. 
Sometimes the employers will, will, will attribute the recipe to the cook, and they give her first name, never her last. Um, giving the last names of a cook is so rare that I can count on one hand the cookbooks that do it, and I don't think any of those books are from Texas. Yeah, that's sad. Now, you've mentioned that they may come from as far away as Monterey, Mexico, and they may come from family. Is there anywhere else that cookbook writers got their recipes from? Well, just like now, women in particular, men too, but women mainly, shared recipes with their friends and handed them down through the generations. The early cookbooks don't document the process all that well. You'll see an occasional reference to mother's mincemeat or cousin (laughs) Molly's cookies, but not as often as you would like to if you're looking at the ways that women pass this knowledge from generation to generation. What is clearer in the publications is that Texas women read nationally published cookbooks, and then they copied from them like mad. (laughs) Now, the name that's most familiar to us from this period in the late 19th century is Fanny Farmer and her Boston Cooking School. And the Boston Cooking School cookbooks are still around, and they're still wonderful. They've been revised dozens of times. But the Texas women... Cookbook writers also cite the work of women that, whose names aren't familiar to us, women like Maria Parloa and Sarah Rohrer. They were pretty famous stars in their day, Like, and the women in Texas refer to Miss Parloa and Mrs. Rohrer like these famous cooks were their best friends. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Now, Parloa and Rohrer ran cooking schools in the Northeast. They were Yankees. And they wrote cookbooks, and they wrote newspaper columns, and the women of Texas obviously adored them. (laughs) Um, There was one cookbook that was published in 1901 that it lifted at least 36 recipes from a cookbook called The Century Cookbook, which had come out of New York in 1898. Lifted is such a harsh word, Rebecca. Borrowed. (laughs) (laughs) So what that tells us is not just that Texas women were plagiarists, but that they were also definitely attuned to the national currents in cooking. Sarah Rohrer, for example, was was an early nutritionist, very interested in food and its value to the body. And so Texas women would have been exposed to and would have known about Rohrer's admonitions on what people need to eat to be healthy. So they were tuned in with those national currents. Okay. So did these cookbooks change as time went by, or, or did they stay the same? In some ways, they didn't change that much. They haven't changed all that much. Um, the technology changes, of course. Refrigeration improved dramatically, and it's really hard to overestimate the importance of refrigeration. Uh, conveniences like having electric mixers move things along quickly. New foods come into being like Jello, and Jello had a big impact on, huh. on the way people eat. A lot more packaged and prepared foods came on the market. Now, having said that, um, women had been embracing foods like canned salmon and salad dressing in a jar since right after the Civil War. So it wasn't the idea that changed, but the number of foods that were available. The basic form of the cookbook, though, either by an authority or by a group of people, has stayed pretty consistent over the years. Now, the biggest change may be in the explosion of cookbooks themselves. 
of the 1,500 or so cookbooks in the Texas collection, fully two-thirds of them have been published just since 1980, so in the last 30 years. Any church worth its name has put out at least one cookbook and often more than one cookbook. Those, those marvelous documents known as Junior League cookbooks started in 1943, and there are currently more than 200 of them Whoa. across the United States. Amazing. So finally, what else should our listeners know about the cookbook collection at the Texas Collection? Well, first, I think that they can learn a lot about food from the books, but they can also find out a lot about what Texans were doing in terms of social mores and customs across the years. Second, I hope that the listeners will go look at their own shelves and their own drawers and see what old cookbooks they have that might be of use to researchers in the Texas Collection, and I would hope that they would consider donating them to Baylor. And the Texas Collection does not pay me to say this. <laughs> A lot of these books were published in really small batches, and they've never made it into any library at all. So if you find an old cookbook and the Texas Collection doesn't have it, there's an excellent chance that they'll be very happy if you donate it. Rebecca, thank you. Thank you for this fascinating look inside the humble cookbook. And I don't know about you, but I'm hungry. Thanks a lot, Bob. This has been Treasures of the Texas Collection. I'm your host, Robert Durden, Associate Professor with the Department of Journalism. For more information on cookbooks or just about anything to do with Texas, the Texas Collection has one of the nation's largest collections of documents, maps, diaries, books, photos, archives, all related to the Lone Star State. For more information, go to baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection has been made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by the Ferguson Clark Endowment Fund. This has been a production of KWBU 103.3 FM, public radio for Central Texas.